You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be, and so if you want to go ahead and turn to Exodus 20, you might also get Deuteronomy 6 uh, there for easy access. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as you're turning there, uh, just real quick, I'm going to take a moment to recognize a few people. If you work on our setup teams or our teardown teams, will you please stand right there where you are for just a moment? Setup or teardown? Just stand right there where you are. Anybody else? Setup or teardown? I want to take just a moment to honor these guys because there is so much work that goes into just creating an avenue and like an environment for us to do what we're doing right now in this room. And uh, apart from the work that these guys put in, we would not be able to do that. And so I want to look at these guys who are standing up and just let you know that when I think of what, you know, biblical greatness is, how the Bible defines biblical greatness, it's what you're doing. It's what you're doing. And so I just want you to know that, that um, when, I walk, when we walk in collectively every morning and enjoy seats that are set up, a sound system that's working, like all of those sort of things, we are saying thank you to, to you for your labor. And when we leave here and know that this, these things get torn down, I just want you to know how much we thank you for the jobs that you do. So can we all just show that by thanking them? Yeah. You can have a seat there where you are. So thank you guys very, very much for that. Um, Secondly, just very briefly, we are at the beginning of 2015. So we're in February, about to be into March. And um, I want to address just really, really briefly uh, finances and and your personal finances, what sacrificial generosity looks like, those sorts of things. And over the last five years, it's been such a humbling thing to watch God provide for our church family. It's just been really remarkable watching that. So humbling to, to see that. And when it comes to finances, here's what I am well aware of in my own life and in our life collectively. That most of us operate kind of as a, um, well, whatever we've always done, we'll just kind of do sort of a thing. So it's a very reactive thing as far as when we think about giving and generosity and those sorts of things. So it's, what have we done? I guess we'll just kind of do that because we don't really think about it. We just do something, right? And I just want to, as as gently as I can, encourage you out of that way of dealing with generosity and your finances. Rather than the reactive, what have we kind of always done? So I guess we'll just do that and not really think about it. Um, To get before the Lord and ask the question, God, in light of what you have entrusted to us this year, what would sacrificial generosity look like? That is a proactive sense in, in how God would want you to operate in your giving which is much better than the reactive kind of a posture. So I just want to, as gently as possible, encourage you toward that, to think about this year and to ask that question. In light of what you have entrusted to me, will you help lead our family towards sacrificial generosity this year? So I just want to encourage you toward that. And lastly, um, you know, all of our church stuff operates kind of on a monthly sort of a rhythm, much like your family's expenses do. So setting that up in a monthly sort of a way definitely serves our church family the best. And if you have a hard time with that, you can do all of that, automate that on the city, um, which makes it very easy to do that. So I want to encourage you not only towards sacrificial generosity, but regular this year um, as you're thinking about how generosity works in your life. Okay, with that said, we are to part three of a set of sermons through the Ten Commandments. And let me just reframe the the entirety of of the Ten Commandments and really the entirety of everything that God says do in the Bible. 
When God is telling us to do something, I want to just remind you how J.I. Packer invites us to think about that. He says that the Ten Commandments are God's parental law. What God tells us to do expresses God's parental love. Parental law, God's saying, do these things. Don't do those things. God's parental law expresses the parental heart of God for his sons and daughters. So when you read the Ten Commandments and you're thinking about, God just said do that or don't do that. When you're thinking about those moments in your life, here's the context that those moments are happening in. It's God setting us down on the couch for a family meeting, him bending down in front of us and looking at his sons and daughters saying, here, like I've set you free. Here's what a life of freedom now looks like. This is what it looks like to live free. I wanna lead you into freedom and joy and fullness of life. So listen to what I'm saying don't do. Listen to what I'm saying do. And if you'll not do those things and do these things, freedom and joy and life will happen for you. You'll actually get to live in the freedom that I've secured for you. Okay, now here is how he starts that parental love. This is the family conversation. We're on the couch God the Father's looking at his sons and daughters, having a family meeting with us, and this is the first thing he says to us. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's reminding us that he really is a good father to us. He cares for us. He has redeemed us. This is the God who loves us enough to rescue us. Verse 2, or verse 3. You sh- this is command one. You shall have no other gods before me. Command one is, is worship and love the right God. Not false gods, but the right God. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's commandment number two. Commandment one is worship and serve the right God. Commandment two is worship and serve the right God in the right way. Now, when we're dealing with commandment one, this idea of no other gods before God. In part one of this set of sermons, we talked about some of the rules that go around interpreting the Ten Commandments. And here was one of the rules that we talked about week one. It's called the two sides rule. Do you remember that? Every commandment has two sides to it. It's got a negative and a positive. It's got something we're to take off or put off and something we're to put on. So they have two sides to it. You can't keep any of the commandments by just keeping one side, by putting these things off. You've also got to put these things on. You can't keep the commandment by just putting these things off. You've got to also put those things, you know, off on the other side. So there's two sides to all the commandments. Now, commandment one is very clear, and this is what we talked about last week. It's very clear on the negative side. It's stated in the negative, right? Don't do these things. Don't have other gods before me. So it's very clear in commandment one what needs to be put off. What isn't so clear, what isn't explicitly stated is, okay, now what needs to be put on? If we're not to have any gods before God, if we're like no idols in our life, we're supposed to take off all of our idolatry, what is supposed to be in its place? What is the put on of the first commandment? To see what God would want us to put on in the first commandment, I think Deuteronomy 6 would be the place to go for that. I think this would be the summary of if no to idols is the, the negative side, the other side of this commandment, the proactive do something side, Like, don't do this is no idolatry, but do this is Deuteronomy 6. 
So when it comes to the proactive, positive side, I think this, this passage would show us what the first commandment is getting at. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, and that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Okay, Deuteronomy 6, verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you today, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this, the next two verses, verses four and five, are the most, the most famous verses in the entirety of the, of the Old Testament. These are really, really, really big and important verses in the Old Testament. So here they are, verse four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, verse four. Now verse five. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So if the negative is, like one side of, of commandment one is no other gods, no idols. The positive, proactive, put these things on of commandment one is, now go love the Lord your God, worship and obey him, love him with everything in you. That's the positive side of this. Now let me just set up why this is so important for us to think about. If your goal in life from like the last week's sermon, no, no idolatry, if your goal is, well, man, we just gotta find idols and just start ripping those things out of our life everywhere we see them, we just gotta uproot these things. If that's kind of how you're gonna operate in life, here's the problem. If you never replace those idols with the good, holy love of God, it's just gonna be a matter of seconds before you return again to idolatry. So it's not just a don't do this, it's a, man, let's go live in a love for God. Let's press into that. Let's walk out into a love of God, like a love of God that consumes our life. This is, this is what the first commandment is telling us to proactively do. So I wanna take a morning to think about these things with you. What does it mean for us to love God? When it's saying, commandment one, no other gods before me. And if, if the proactive side is, now love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and, and strength. If that's what it's saying, what, what does that mean? So let's start with this, the command clarified. I'm gonna kind of come at this from three different angles this morning. But let me start by just clarifying what is in this commandment. Or this idea of loving God with all of your heart, soul, and, and, and might. So there is a what, there's a who, and there's a how here. So just in clarifying the commandment, there's a what, who, and a how. So the what is love. Okay, so, so God is looking at us in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and saying, I really want you to love. Okay, so, so that's the what. It's this idea of love. Now, we've got a lot of work to do on determining what all that means, but love is the central idea of it. But then there's a who. Like, there's an object of that love. God doesn't just say love ambiguously. He's saying, no, I want you to love me. The Lord your God, and if you look at Deuteronomy 6, verse uh, 4, you'll see Lord in all caps. That, that is telling us something about what it's talking about there. That is the, the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's that Lord. It's the, it's the Lord who has rescued the people of Israel out of their slavery. It's that God who's delivered them. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 4, tells us this. This Lord is one. 
So it's not many gods that God is telling us to love. It's the one God of the scriptures, the God who has rescued and redeemed them. From the rest of the Bible, we know that this one God is in three persons, that this God is triune. He exists in Father, He exists in Son, that's Jesus, and He exists in Holy Spirit. So this one God in three persons, this God who has redeemed and rescued us, it's that God that He is saying love. It's that God looking at us saying, now I want you to love me with everything in you. It's that God. So so that's the the what and that's the who, and then there's a how. Now look at Deuteronomy uh, chapter six, verse five. You shall love the Lord your God with all, all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, let me just point out two things there. First of all, it's got these um, words that are all like synonyms of one another. So it's got heart, it's got soul, and it's got mind. Now, he could have just said, love me with all of your heart, and that would have been just fine. It would cover your, your soul and your mind. It would cover all of those other things too. Heart is the controlling center of who you are. So if he said heart, it would be fine. It would, it would cover it all and it would be getting across the same point. But he's using all of these other synonyms, synonyms and these other words for a reason. He's emphasizing it. He's, it's, it's like he's wanting to scream it. I don't just want you to love God. I want you to love God like that. He's emphasizing it in those ways by using multiple words, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. He's saying, I want you to love God with everything. He's emphasizing it. But then it's interesting, before each of those words, before heart, before soul, and before might, you have the word all. So it's all of your heart. It's all of your soul. It's all of your might. So in using the word all in front of these, you know, these words that are synonyms, here's what he's doing. He's emphasizing what he has already emphasized. So I don't know how you like do that in our culture above like screaming, but he's like screaming really loud. Like he is, he's trying to do everything he can to, to get across the point of, I want you to love God with everything in you. This is like a no hold, you know, no holding back, no holds barred, nothing left on the table. All of my chips are moved in. I'm loving God with every ounce in me, with all, every part of my being. It is out there. It is loving God. This is the how. It is that sort of a comprehensive, that sort of an intense love that he is pushing us toward here. So this is the command clarified. It's love and it's loving God in particular, the God of the scriptures, and it's loving that God with everything in you. It's that sort of an intense love, exclusive love. Now, here's the next thing I wanna do. I wanna wanna try to picture the command. This is the command picture. Because whenever someone says, hey, you, you should really be loving God, I think that there is an, an abstractness about that that can give us a hard, a hard time. Like, okay, well, what does it mean to love God? What does that actually look like? Now, when, you're, when you read the Bible, one of the primary metaphors that the Bible uses to describe how we're to relate to God and how God relates to us is the imagery of marriage. Like the imagery of a husband and a wife coming together and them loving one another in marriage serves as a great metaphor in the Bible for how God relates to us and how we're to relate to God, right? So marriage is a really important metaphor for that. So I wanna take what the Bible gives us license to take, this image of marriage, and I wanna use it to describe what a love for God looks like. 
And my hope for us is that, that when, we, when we're thinking about what does it look like to love God, that it takes it out of this abstract world up here somewhere and brings it down to street level where we have like some handlebars on. When we're saying love God with everything, we've got handlebars on what does that actually mean and what does that look like in our life? And so, uh, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take this just in personal terms and I'm gonna, I, I, my wife is Laura and I'm gonna treat it like I'm talking to Laura. And what does it mean for me to love a spouse that God has gifted me with? What, what does that mean? Okay, what, what does it mean? When I say, Laura, I love you, what are the ways that that love gets expressed in my life and in her life? So I'm gonna take it like that and then we'll apply each of these to God. So let me give you a few of these. So when I'm looking at Laura and I'm saying, Laura, I love you, part of what that means is this. It's me looking at her and saying, Laura, I am passionate about you. Like I have like emotional energy that's really good directed towards you. Like I am passionate about you. Now I'm using that word passionate for a reason. And the reason is I'm trying to drill right into this idea that an authentic love for a person is both duty and delight. It's not just duty. It's not just delight. It's duty and delight. As a husband, there are things that I should do for Laura, but it's not just any sort of a should. It's a should. It's a duty that is surrounded by delight in the fact that I love this, world, this, this lady, so I am glad to do this duty that I'm called to do for her. So let me um, borrow this uh, This you know, image from a pastor, this metaphor from a pastor, and I'll just kind of personalize it and put it in our terms, especially coming out of Valentine's weekend, this is really applicable. On, okay, so Valentine's was yesterday. Um, On Friday, I went and I bought roses and flowers for all the ladies in our home. So I bought, uh, you know, some roses for Hannah, I bought some for Eva, and I bought some for Laura, and I attached with each of those flowers um, a handwritten letter from me to each of them. Uh, describing what I think about them, how proud I am of them, that whole thing. Now, I want you to imagine Laura seeing those roses, walking in, and she, she looks at me and says, man, I, you know, th- those are expensive. Like, Rodney, why did you do that? So imagine her asking the question, Rod, why, why, did, you, why did you spend money on, on roses like that? And so uh, let me give you two takes on how that could go down. Here's take number one. Well, Laura, some idiot somewhere came up with this idea of Valentine's Day. And it has become enshrined in our culture as a day where a husband better do something. You better do something if you're a husband on that day. I'm a husband, you're a wife, here's my something. Now imagine it going down like that. And ask yourself the question, does Laura feel loved in that moment? No. Now, why is that? It's because there is a should with Valentine's Day. If you're a guy in the room, you should be doing something consistently for your wife that shows you really do love them. So there is a should that goes along with it, but it's not that kind of should, right? It's a different kind of should. If the should is just duty, it doesn't feel like love. Now, let's picture another scenario with the same moment going down. She sees the flowers. She looks at me and says, Rodney, why did you do that? And I look back at her and I say something like this. "Um, Laura, here's the reason that I bought you flowers and wrote you a note. Because I think you're awesome. I love you. 
When I, when I think about gifts that God has given me outside of Jesus, you are at the top of the list. Now, I love how generous you are to me. I love how you pray for me, how you encourage me, how fun you are. Like you make our life much more fun. I love all of those things about you, Laura. I mean, I really think you're incredible. Now, if you're Laura in that moment, does that feel like love to you? Of course it does, because it's the right kind of should. There is a duty there. Like I'm doing a duty on Friday. I went somewhere, I, I spent money on flowers. I sat down and I wrote her a note. That's duty. But around that duty, there is great delight because I actually love her. There is something in me that says, this woman right here is a gift from God and I wanna honor her. But I wanna show her that. Okay, now let's apply this to God for a moment. If your relationship with God is defined by duty, that means the wrong kind of should is motivating things. And God is not up there looking at us saying, man, I just want there begrudging submission. I just want a should out of them. No, that's not what God's saying. As a parent, that's not what you want for your kids. You want the right kind of should, just like God wants the right kind of should. If our, if our relationship with God is purely defined by duty and no delight, that is not a God-honoring obedience. God actually wants there to be delight in what we're doing for him, delight in how we're approaching him, delight in how we're responding to him, delight in the duties that we're doing for him. God actually wants that sort of delight in there. He wants those sort of emotions in there. Love is both duty and delight. It's gotta have both of those to be God-honoring love. Both of those. So let me just clarify, because this is like a big cultural myth. Love is not just romantic feelings, right? And love to God is not just a, you know, a good feeling in us that says, God, I wanna do, you know, it's not just that, but it is certainly not less than that. Okay, so we're not trying to say that it's just desire, but we're trying to say it's both duty and des desire, duty and delight, that both of those are so important in the Christian life. Now, the Psalms are really helpful in showing this. So just watch the Psalmist and how he's relating to God and ask yourself, is there duty and delight here? Is this all begrudging submission, all just duty that the psalmist has toward God? Or is there more to how he relates to God? And listen to how he says it. Psalms 42.1. As a deer pants for water, like the deer is thirsty. He has not had a drink in a long time and he sees water and he starts running to the water. As a deer pants for the water, the psalmist says, so my, uh, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now, does that sound like all duty? No, that's not all duty. There's delight in there. Psalm 63, one, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalms 27.4, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's not just duty, is it? Psalms 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. See, the Psalms is showing us that with duty to God, 
Like with the things that the psalmist knows he should be doing with God, there is great delight around that. There's great desire around that. And to love God appropriately, it means that there is both duty and delight. Duty and desire. We're doing things that we know we should be doing because God wants it, but there is a delight in doing them because we love the God who wants them. Duty and delight. Now let's just apply this for a moment. Many of us came into the room this morning and in all honesty, we really didn't want to be at church. And the truth is, if we were honest with ourselves in a moment like this, that's far more of us than we would like to admit. There's moments when we know we should read the Bible, and the truth is, we just don't want to read the Bible. There's moments when we know we should be praying, and the truth is, we just don't really want to be praying. So those moments are going to happen in all of our lives. It's going to happen in a marriage with another person. It's going to happen in our marriage with God. There's going to be moments where we just don't want the things that we, that we should, should want. We just don't want it the way we should want it. Okay, the question is, what do you do in those moments? Like if you came in this morning, you're like, man, I'm here, but I didn't really want to be here. But I'm here because I know it's the place I should be. Okay, now hear me really carefully. This is so important for you to have some sort of a grasp of this in your Christian life and the way you're relating to God. It is a foolish thing to to be in a position where you, you know you should want it, but you don't. So you just do the duty. It is a foolish thing to just do the duty. To say, okay, I don't care how I feel. I'm just gonna do it. That is a foolish thing if you're relating to God that way. So hear me. Like get some sort of a picture in those moments how we should relate to God. Because listen, God is not just concerned about you doing the duty. He actually wants delight there. He wants both duty and delight. So, So hear this. If that's you this morning, this should be our approach to God. It starts with repentance, knowing that God wants both duty and delight. God, I didn't want to be with your people this morning. God, there's a million other places I wanted to be rather than opening up the Bible and hearing your word taught, singing songs that celebrate the good news of Jesus. There's a million other places I'd rather be. And God, I repent of that. I know there's not a million other places I should want to be. I know that I should want to be right here. And I know, God, it's in, in some ways dishonoring to you. So God, I, I repent of that. I acknowledge that that's not right. It's not good. It, it's, it's reflective of darkness in me. God, I acknowledge that. That's step one. Step two, God, please change me. God, will you please give me the desire to match the duty? God, will you please restore the affections that should be there? God, I I don't want to just do this thing out of duty. I want there to be desire. So will you please change my heart? God, I recognize it's wrong. God, I'm praying for transformation. And then I go about doing the duty I know I should do. But it's not until there has been repentance and there has been the request for God to change me. See, if, if your mentality is, well, that's the right thing, so let's just do it. If that's your mentality, chances are over time, it's gonna make your heart harder, not softer toward God. That there's gotta be these moments of God, I don't feel the way I I should. I wanna feel this way, I just don't feel it. So God, I'm recognizing there's something off in me. There's, There's problems in me. God, will you please change the way that I feel? And now God, I'm gonna go about doing the thing that you have called me to do. Over time, when you approach it that way, your desire will begin to catch your duty. 
It will begin to to surround your duty again so that there will be a day in your future when God answers your prayer and you can actually do the duty with a lot of delight around it again. But God is concerned with both of those, duty and delight. If we're gonna love God appropriately, it means that we pay careful attention to the desires in us. So, So ask yourself the question, Do I desire God? That that question right now, there is no more important question for you to to answer in your life right now. Ask yourself that. Do I desire God? Do I really, do I want God? Does my soul find delight in God? Do I have these deep, durable affections for God in me? Okay, now look at me here. If your answer is like, not, not really, like right, right now, not, not so much. If that's your answer, there is nothing more important in your life than getting down on your knees before God and begging him to restore those. There's nothing more important in your life. You keep living down that road long enough, really bad things happen. Tragic things happen. The end of that road is not good. It is vitally important that we have deep, abiding, durable affections. And when they're not there, that's a big deal. That's not just like a, well, let's just scrape it under the rug and get about our life. No, that's stop your life and plead with God to restore those things. Plead with God to give you those things. What it means to love God is there is both duty and delight in the way that we're approaching him. Here's the second thing. When you're thinking about what it means to love a spouse, it would mean, it would be me looking at Laura. And when I say I love you to her, it's me saying, Laura, I am loyal to you. I am loyal. This is an exclusive love that we have here. I'll oftentimes say this, that uh, like in, uh, in weddings, right after we do the vows, I'll many times say, I'll look at both of them, who have both just said yes to one another. I do to one another. And, and I'll say something like this. It's not overly obvious right now to you that in saying I do or yes to this woman or to this man, that you're also saying I don't. You're also giving a no to many other things. But that's just what happened. With your yes to, to her, with your yes to him, there is also a no to a million other things that might come in between you two. And everything that might come in between you two now is a no. In saying yes to one another, all of those things are now no's. Do you see how that works? In saying, yes, God, I love you. We are also, in saying that yes, saying no to every other competing love. See, this, is, this ties back into what we talked about last week in idolatry. We are saying no to every false God that wants to creep into our marriage bed with God. And, and every time we see those things, every time we see that idolatry creeping in, what saying yes to God means is every time we see idolatry, that we look at idolatry with ruthlessness and we approach it, we repent and we approach it with absolute zeal to get it out of our marriage. See, what, what it means to love God loyally is that every other love that we have in our life is swallowed up by our love for God. That every other love in our life, listen to this, would look like hate in comparison to our love for God. It doesn't mean that we actually hate them, but it means in comparison, you would swear that's hate. That our love of God swallows up every other love like that. So can can you just ask yourself the question, just take a moment here before God and ask yourself, are any mistresses in my life right now? Has anything crept in between me and God right now? 
Any idols that need to be pushed away from, need to be repented of, need to be turned from, so that I can reaffirm my loyal love to God, my exclusive love for God. Third thing, when I look at Laura and I say, Laura, I love you, part of what I'm saying to her is, Laura, I want to spend time with you. I am going to spend time with you. One way or the other, me and you are spending time together. This is part of what it means to love a person. If, if I looked at Laura and I said, Laura, I love you, but then for the next three weeks, I'm just gone. Like I come home sometimes, I don't other times. We make no plans to hang out. We, sp- we make no plans to spend time together. We are just kind of like two ships passing in the night, ne- never settling down and like me actually looking at her and cultivating a friendship. Us actually providing space for us to talk to one another so that she'll know that like the, the issues in my heart, I'll know the issues in her heart. Like I'll know dreams and hopes, tears, fears, all of those things. Like part of, if, if I look at her and say, I love you, but I never create that sort of space, she would have every reason to question are you sure you really love me? Because it doesn't really feel like you love me. It feels like you've got a lot of other things that you would rather do as opposed to spending time with me. See, part of what love looks like in action is time spent with a person cultivating a relationship with them. Now, the same thing is true for God. Part, when we look at God and we say, God, I love you, That love for God is expressed in a desire and a want and a willingness to actually spend time with God. Now, what would you say to the man who looks at, you know, he got married, looks at that woman and says, I'm in. They get married, they have their wedding day. And the next thing you know, like he's gone. He's out of there. He's got other things going on. I mean, it's like when he thinks about his wife, he's got a lot of other things that he's thinking about. Other things just kind of crept in. Other things just kind of more important. He's just got a lot on his mind. What, how would you look, what would you say to him in that moment? You would say something like, are you sure you love that woman? Because it looks like you just love you, right? This is what we would all say. Now ask yourself the question though, is that how you relate to God? Because I've got the sneaky suspicion that how most of us relate to God's like this, God, that wedding day was awesome, but we've just got a lot of things going on. So give me a week or two and I'll be back. God, there's just, we've got a lot going on in our life right now. So God, just give me some time and, and we'll, we'll get back to like actually sitting down and like spending time together. Now, I think it's totally appropriate from God to say, that doesn't feel like love to me. Like love for me feels like Man, I am going to figure out how to spend time with you. Now, let me just give you two ways that, two primary ways that we spend time with God. There's a lot we could say about it, but let me just boil it down to these two. Word and prayer. Let's start with word. A vital way that we spend time with God is through opening up the Bible and reading it. If you've got a commute, don't feel bad about putting it on an audio Bible and listening to it. It's the same thing. But it's getting this thing, spending time with God over his word. Now think about what the Bible is. The Bible is is God's love letter to you to remind you of God's jaw-dropping grace that came to you a rebel and made you sons and daughters. It's meant to remind you of those things, to remind you of what's ultimately important in your life, to keep you from the deception of sin. It's meant to remind you of all that. It's meant to show you who the God is that you love. 
It's meant to help you grow in learning and knowing and understanding who is this God that saved me and that has married me. Now, okay, now this is pressing to this for a moment. Part of what it means to love God is growing in our understanding of and our knowledge of the God we love. But this is part of what it means to, to love God. Let, let me just put it in practical, like, you know, horizontal marriage sort of situations. I picture me coming up to, to my wife, Laura, and me saying, Laura, I want you to know that I love you. I love everything about you. I love your beautiful green eyes. I love them. Those eyes are the prettiest eyes I've ever seen in my life. I love your golden blonde hair. That hair is awesome. I love that. Now, I want you to picture this moment where Laura looks at me and says, uh, maybe you mean well, I, I don't know, but it's just weird to me because I don't have green eyes and I don't have blonde hair. I've got brown eyes and I've got brown hair. Now just imagine that moment. And I think that's so often how we relate to God. We're looking at God and saying, God, your hair is awesome. And God's like, I, I don't have hair. That's weird. <laughs> See, part of what it means to love God is that we're growing in our understanding of who God is. This is what the Bible calls theology. It's the study of God. And the truth is we're all theologians in the room. The question is, are we good biblical theologians or are we bad non-biblical theologians? And it's really easy to begin to make God in our image. Like to think God thinks just like we do about everything. And God doesn't think like we do about everything. This is why it's important to open up our Bible and to learn about the God who has revealed himself in it. It's the way that we love God by learning more about him, by, by understanding him more, by, by learning more of his attributes and characters and the way that he responds in the world. And the Bible is the only way you can do that. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. Now, if you're like the, uh, the achiever sort, here, here's what your mind instantly goes to. If you're the achiever guy, you're like, well, man, I'm going to get the Bible reading plan. I'm going to do it all this week. All 66 books, let's just do it right now. And I'm, I, don't, I don't know if that's the answer. I think just getting a Bible reading plan and allowing a slow drip every day into your life would be a wonderful thing for all of us. Slow drip. And that slow drip over time makes a huge canyon in our life called the grace and love of God. Just that slow drip. So can I just, I, I wanna beg you, get the Bible reading plan and start reading it. Start reading it. But the other side is prayer. Prayer is us communing with God. It's the real us meeting the real God. It's, it's where we get to pour our guts out before God and God meets us in the middle of all of our fears and tears, all of those things being poured out in front of him. It's communion with God like that. Can you imagine a marriage that uh, they're married, they live in the same house, but they, they don't know each other. Like they don't talk about what's, what's scaring them in life right now. They don't talk about what their hopes are, what their dreams are, where they're really scared, where they're insecure. They don't talk about any of those deepest things of their life. They just exist on this plane way up there. That's not marriage. That's just like two people being roommates. That's not marriage. And neither is that the way we're to relate to God. God invites us to pour our guts out to him in prayer. And he allows himself to meet us right there in the middle of us pouring our heart out with grace and mercy. God loves that. The real us meeting the real God through prayer. So ask yourself the question, are you spending time with God? 
And just heed this warning, no one ever stumbles into time with God. It is not less spiritual if you have to schedule it. As a matter of fact, if you don't know this week when you're spending time with God, I'll just tell you, if it's not a planned thing in your life, chances are you're gonna answer the question, like how are you doing spending time with God? You're gonna answer it like this, really badly. If you don't schedule it, you're not going to do it. If I don't schedule date nights with Laura, I'm not gonna spend time with her. Just not gonna happen. So it's not less spiritual to do that. Like when you think about your week, it would be really helpful for you to know when and how that's gonna look in your life. So love for God looks like spending time with God. Here's the fourth one. If I look at Laura and say, I love you, part of what I'm saying is I will pursue the things that, that you love, that pleases you. I'll pursue those things that bring you joy, Laura. So this is part of what it means to love your, your wife or love your husband. It means that we, we think about them, we think about what brings them joy, and then we get our life arranged around those things that would bring them joy. So now I'm gonna pursue those things. And this is what loving God looks like. It's asking the questions, opening up the Bible and asking the question, what, does God, what, is, what pleases the heart of God our Father when he sees it going down? And now let's get our life wrapped into those things that bring him pleasure. See, this is what uh, Jesus is saying in John 14, verse 15. John 14, verse 15, Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Like part of what it means to love God is to learn what brings his heart great pleasure. And then with both duty and delight, we step into those things and do them. That brings great pleasure to the heart of God. It's one of the ways that we look at God and say, not just with our lips, but with our lives, God, we love you. So ask yourself the question, is there anything right now in your life that you have barricaded from him? Any point of obedience that he is pressing on and you're looking at God saying, nope, not gonna do that. Any parts of your life that you have walled off to the grace and mercy of God? This is a morning, this is a moment where we get to look at God and say, God, I love you. And part of what me loving you means is I'm gonna allow that wall to come down. God, I want mercy and grace to become to come behind that wall and to address not just parts of my life, but every part of my life. Is there any obedience that you're withholding right now? Is there any obedience that you're not pressing toward? Like the Bible actually wants us to have a really aggressive approach to this. Like a, man, God, just show me and I'm in. And I'm not just like one step dabbling into obedience. It's like I am full throttle, nothing held back, running toward obedience. That sort of obedience. This is what it looks like to love God, fifthly. And when I say to, to Laura, Laura, I love you. What I'm saying in that moment is, Laura, I will take great delight in talking about you. See, it's a funny thing, like when, uh, when I listen to other preachers, one of the things that's always interesting is I feel like I know them and their family a lot better than I really do. You ever feel that way? Like, the, the, it, like if you come to Stonegate and you listen to me preach regularly, you're gonna know my families in ways that are weird. Like you know us, but some of you don't, you don't know us like that, but you know us sort of like that because you hear me talk about it like that, right? And so, and the issue that's at play there is, I think that should happen to all of our lives. If someone got to hear you speak publicly often, they should know about the people that you love because part of what it means to love people is that you talk about the people that you love. Now let's apply that to God. Part of what it means to love God is that we talk about God. 
We talk about it. Now, we could apply this in a million directions. We could apply it to evangelism and mission. Part of what it means to love God is that we're missionaries who talk about the God who's redeemed us and loved us and saved us and adopted us a lot to people who don't know Jesus. Part of what that would mean is that in our friendship circles, the people we do life with and and relate to kind of on a consistent basis, that we talk about the things of God. What's God doing in us? What God's doing in you? That those are normal conversations. But let me apply it specifically to the home. Because this is the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you keep reading post verse 5 in Deuteronomy chapter 6, here's what you get to in verses 6 and 7. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and 7 say this. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. And here's what you're to do with these words that are on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, talk about Jesus should be really common and like normal in the the context of our homes. Okay, now I want everyone to to like focus in right here for just a moment, look up, and I want to just have a brief conversation with you on this. I have been in um, full-time ministry for over a decade now, and I have been constantly amazed by how many families that would profess a love for Jesus never talk about him inside of their home. It's one of the weirdest things. that I, 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 There's a million, I think, little layers that come onto that, but that is, a, that, that is far too often the norm, not the exception. And, and if that's you this morning, man, I, I don't want you to feel like, man, I'm getting you know, guilt and shame. He, man, I just wanna invite you... I think it would be wise and great for all of us if that's us to figure out this morning, what would it look like for me to begin to take steps toward this? Like what would it look like for me to begin to press into this and walk into talking about the things of God in the context of our house? Like with our kids, with my wife, with my husband, with my family, for us to to do that. One of the things that I am very, very concerned about in my home Like this is like an an intentional, I wanna do everything I can to create this culture in our home. I want the air in our home that we all breathe to be like, talk about God, talk about Jesus, talk about grace. I want that to be normal for us. I, I want our kids to feel an absolute freedom if they have a theological question for them to be able to roll that thing out. If they've got a question about God for us to be able to talk about that, I want that to feel so normal. Like, what is God doing in your life? What is God doing in my life? Us praying together. For that to be like the air we breathe in our home. For it to be that normal. Now, if you're here and you're like, God, it's just, I'd like that too, but we're just not there right now. Man, we're all on that journey together. And one of the, the tools that we want all of our families to use, it's just like putting it on a silver platter for you is the New City Catechism. You can download the app uh, to your iPad, any of your devices, you can download it. It's there right, you know, right there for you. This would be like an easy first step, taking the New City Catechism, tonight at dinner, reading question one, then reading the answer together, talking about that answer. You can read the commentary section, you can read the passage it's based from, but it's just a very easy way to take one step into, let, let's just think about God in the context of our family and talk about that. This is one of the ways that we love God. It would be weird for, for, for us to look at God and say, God, we love you, but never to talk about him. That's, just, that's not how love is expressed. Part of how we express a deep and abiding, durable love for God is by talking about God with other people, in particular, our family. Now we'll finish with this. 
The command's motive. The command's motive. And I just want to remind you of the context of the Ten Commandments is God with us on the couch. It's, it's our daddy God looking at us saying, I've set you free. Now I want you to live free. And living free means you are living for me. That you love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your might. That's what free living looks like. I am a good king. I am a good dad for you. And when you love me, man, your life is going to be full of freedom and joy. See, there is a lot at stake for you and I as to whether or not we're going to love God or not. There's a lot at stake with that question. See, and here's the best way I could describe what's at stake with whether or not you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, or strength, or you go after false gods. Here's what's at stake. A deep ocean of joy is at stake. That's what's at stake. God has created you to love him. He's designed you to love him. He's designed you to worship and obey him. He's designed you for all of that. And when you live in that, you begin to unlock God's joy and God's freedom in your life. When you don't live in that, you lock the key around joy. You make it where it's impossible to experience those things. God, in this commandment, he's saying, man, I want you to experience life and life to the full. I don't want to rob you of joy. I want to walk you into where deep, durable, abiding joy can be found, and that's in you loving me. Second thing, and we're done here. When it comes to the motive of this commandment, I, I don't know, if you're like me, like I read this commandment, and I'm like, but God, I'm so far from this. I want to do that, but then I find in me that I don't want to so often. So if you're like me and you struggle like that, like God, I, I wanna love you more, but where does like the umph and the desire and the delight in that come from? God, God I wanna want it, but I sometimes I just don't want it. Where does that come from? Answer, John four nineteen will be on the screen for you. Where does this deep abiding durable love to God come from? John 4, 19, 1 John four nineteen says it this way. We love because he first loved us. If you want to love God better this morning, here's where it starts, in you resting in and receiving how God has loved you. I love how one pastor said it. He said the number one reason why you and I fail to love God the way he deserves is because we fail to understand the depths by which he has loved us. We just, we just can't get our mind around the crazy ways that God has loved us. So will you go ahead and, and close your eyes right there where you are? And I wanna give you just a moment to think about how has God loved me? Just right there where you are. I, I want you to answer that question. How has God loved me? And just thinking about that last night just brought me to tears. How has God loved me? How would you answer that? How has God loved me? Now, I have no idea what all you just said to God in that moment. But I want to answer that question in the deepest way possible. 
there is no greater proof of God's deep, durable, abiding, reckless, prodigal love of you than the cross of Christ. Where God would come and approach rebels like us, people who have stiff-armed him, people who have willfully turned our back on him, and yet God would meet us rebels with grace and mercy in the life of his son Jesus. He would send Jesus to live the life that, that we should have lived, but just couldn't live it. We just don't have it in us to perfectly live out God's commands. And yet God sent his son to perfectly live out his commands, to fulfill every command he has ever given. And then after perfectly living out God's commands, Jesus crawled up on a cross and he died the death that we deserved, that our sin earned us before God. And it's in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that God comes to rebels like us and makes us sons and daughters, that brings us into his family, that puts his spirit in us, that empowers us to live this sort of a life. And this sort of crazy, prodigal, reckless love of God is so hard for us to get and to comprehend that Paul in Ephesians, he actually has to pray for us. God, will you please, by, by the power of your spirit, show them the sort of depth, the sort of height, the sort of breadth, the sort of length that your love for them has. And God, I pray that right now. If we're ever going to be a people who love you appropriately, that will always start with us knowing deep down in our guts how you have loved us inappropriately. How you have, how you have come after us with reckless grace. So God, will you convince us of that right now? God, will you help us see that we are loved by you in ways that we can't even imagine? And God, might you use that to, to stir up in us a deep love of you? So we wanna give you just a moment to respond in this this morning. And God, I just pray that you would press into my friends in this room the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't. And for some of us, this means, this means responding to God for the first time in, in faith, turning from our sin, throwing our life upon Jesus. And it doesn't matter what you have done, how bad you have been, or how good you think you've been. We all need saving grace and grace covers it all. And when you come to God this morning, God, with arms wide open, is ready to embrace you. And for, for others of us in the room, that moment has happened. God has saved us in the past tense, saved us from the penalty of sin. And for the millionth time, this is us again coming to God, expressing, man, we have chased after lesser loves. God, we're repenting. God, will you restore to us the desires that we need? And so wherever you are this morning, I just want to invite you as we sing this last song for you to interact with God, for you to express that to God. So God, will you in your grace meet us right here in this room? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.